You can turn to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning, Matthew chapter 12. While you turn there, I wanted to give you all an update on the worship ministry here at Southwood. Many of you know, we mentioned uh, a number, a couple months ago, that Ross will be leaving us soon. Ross King uh, committed to us for about 18 months when we started the Southwood campus to help us start the campus well. And he's done an amazing job. He is a big part of the reason that so many people are here, that the campus has been so successful. But this whole time, Ross has continued to be the worship leader and a pastor and elder at another church, at Community Church, that he leads uh, on Sunday evenings. That's what allowed him to lead with us on Sunday mornings. So he committed to us for 18 months. He's graciously extended that by a few more months as we have looked for somebody to fill his shoes. Um, And I I believe we found the person. We hired Colin Bates about a month ago. Colin will be coming on staff at the beginning of June with us. He'll be leading worship here uh, at the Southwood campus, and he'll be coordinating worship for the whole church. Now, Colin and his wife, Dana, they call Southwood home. They go to church here with us. We're very excited to have him leading us in the coming years. So we're really excited about that. I'm excited to introduce Colin to you at the beginning of June. He actually led worship here about six weeks ago, for those of you who are here that Sunday. Now, before Ross leaves, we want to have a chance as a family to thank him. And so on uh, Sunday, May 30th, we're going to have a coffee social. That's just a few weeks away. Sunday, May 30th, we're going to have a coffee social that's going to be dedicated to giving us an opportunity to express our gratitude to Ross and to what God has done through Ross. So uh, on May 30th, after the service, we'll go out in the foyer, and that will be our opportunity as a family to thank Ross and to speak to Ross and to just thank him for all that he's done. So please be here that Sunday. Um, and, and share with Ross stories of what he's meant to you and what uh, the Lord has done through him and your life. So um, with that happy news out of the way, now it's time for a much more depressing subject this morning. Look at Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 30. Matthew 12 verse 30. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. This morning I want us to study the unforgivable sin. Now you may be wondering, um, Blake, it's a beautiful day outside, it's a nice time of year, why in the world are we studying such a dark subject as the unforgivable sin? Well, I have a couple reasons to study this topic this morning. First reason, uh, every time I do a Q&A and open the floor for questions, invariably somebody asks me, what is the unforgivable sin and could I have committed it? It's a question I get all the time. People are always wondering, what is this sin? Could they have committed it? People have been asking that for 2,000 years. Actually, ever since Jesus spoke these words, people have been wrestling over this passage. There is a long and convoluted history of interpretation of this passage. About 100 100 AD, uh, the early church wrote a document called the Didache, and it equated the unforgivable sin with failure to accept the words of a New Testament prophet. If a prophet speaks in your church and you don't accept their words, that's the unforgivable sin. Sometime later, Irenaeus in the second century, he equated it with a lack of response to the gospel. If you don't accept the gospel, that's the unforgivable sin. A hundred years later, great church theologian Origen equated this sin with post-conversion sin. If you sin after having trusted in Jesus as your Savior, that's unforgivable. Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, one of the great Catholic theologians, equated this sin with suicide. That's the one unforgivable sin in his system. 
Now, in modern days, today, the list of possible interpretations has only grown. I I found a website that lists all the distinct interpretations of this passage that are out there today. It has 33 distinct interpretations of this sin. Everything from apostasy to blasphemy of Jesus to uh, failure to forgive other people to adultery. All kinds of things included in this list of 33 different possible unforgivable sins. So the first reason to have this particular message is I want to clear up the confusion this morning. I want to help you understand accurately what is the unforgivable sin in the context of Matthew. When Jesus spoke these words, he wasn't speaking in a vacuum. What did he mean in the context of the book of Matthew when he talked about an unforgivable sin? But this isn't just an academic exercise this morning. I'm not just studying this topic with you for the sake of theological curiosity. Uh, The second reason that I want to cover this passage this morning is because it is very relevant to our lives. Your understanding of the unforgivable sin will have a dramatic impact on the way you live your life. If some of these guys are right, especially origin, then all of us have a great reason to fear in the course of our lives, to live in fear, because some of us could be in danger of committing a sin that would lead to eternal damnation. That's serious stuff. That's, that's a fear that a guy named John Bunyan knew well. Many of you know John Bunyan is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most influential books in the last few hundred years. He was a Puritan pastor and author, a great guy, but a guy who lived in constant fear. Here's what Bunyan wrote of himself. I feared, therefore, that this wicked sin of mine might be that sin unpardonable. And now was I both a burden and a terror to myself, nor did I ever so know as now what it was to be weary of my life and yet afraid to die. Oh, how gladly now would I have been anybody but myself, anything but a man, and in any condition but mine own. For there was nothing did pass more frequently over my mind than that it was impossible for me to be forgiven my transgression and to be saved from the wrath to come. There's a Puritan pastor and preacher, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. If anybody should have confidence in their salvation, it's John Bunyan, but he didn't. He went to his grave a terrified man, sure that he had committed the unforgivable sin and would spend eternity in hell as a result. Well, if Bunyan is right, if there is some sin that we could commit that would irrevocably sentence us to hell, then we have reason to live in fear just like he did. On the other hand, if he's wrong... If there is no sin that would be unforgivable for us, then we have reason for confidence and security and peace that so many of the Puritans never knew. So that's why we're studying such a dark subject this morning. Because it is confusing, but also because it has a major impact on how you live your life. But before we can get to the unforgivable sin in Matthew 12, 30-33, we have to set the stage a little bit. We have to set this passage in context. You cannot understand what Jesus means by the unforgivable sin if you don't understand the overall book of Matthew, the big ideas of the book of Matthew, because this is just one passage that fits in to the book as a whole. So we're going to take some time this morning to look at the book of Matthew as a whole, to set this teaching in its context, in the overall ministry of the life of Jesus. Now, I'm hoping that this is going to pull together some of the things that you've learned throughout this semester as we've studied the life of Jesus. We're going to kind of pull all the pieces together this morning. So uh, let's set the stage. Let's talk about the context of the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew was written to Jews. It wasn't written to Gentiles like most of us. It was written to Jews. It was written to Jews to convince them that Jesus is their king. 
Now, not their king from heaven, but their king on earth, their Davidic king, the king God promised to them throughout the whole Old Testament. That's what Matthew writes for, to convince them that Jesus is the Davidic king. Now, you may remember, uh, right at the beginning of the semester, we talked about what Jesus' purpose was in coming to earth. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, you know that, that God the Father and Jesus, they knew that Jesus was ultimately going to die on the cross. They knew that that was coming. But when Jesus shows up on the scene and he begins to minister to the nation of Israel, what is the purpose of his ministry? We covered that at the beginning of the semester and we learned that Jesus' purpose, the reason for his ministry, was to restore the Davidic kingdom to Israel as her king and then fulfill all of the Old Testament covenants. That's what the ministry of Jesus is about. He arrives on the scene to be king, to restore the Davidic kingdom to Israel and fulfill the covenants promised in the Old Testament. That's the reason that he shows up on the scene. And that's what the whole book of Matthew is about. It's the unfolding of this ministry of Jesus revealing himself as king and how the nation responded. The book of Matthew breaks down into three sections. Uh, The first part of it, chapters 1 through 11, the king is revealed to the nation. Second section, chapters 12 through 27, the king is rejected by the nation. And then the best chapter, most important chapter, chapter 28, the king is vindicated in the eyes of the nation through the resurrection. That's the book of Matthew, three parts. Okay, our section this morning, Matthew chapter 12, that's the beginning of the second part, the rejection of the king. But to understand what's going on in that part, you have to study the first half of the book first. So we're going to do a quick survey of Matthew chapters 1 through 11. I want to walk you through the key verses, key ideas of how Jesus' ministry unfolds. So turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to hit some, some big verses here as we walk through the first half of the ministry of Jesus. Okay, so chapters 1 through 11, the king is revealed. Uh, the book begins, chapters 1 through 2, with the birth of the king. That's what chapters 1 through 2 are about. I want to point out a couple verses to you, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, very beginning of the book. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Very, very significant verse here. Very, very significant connection to the Old Testament. This verse is telling us that Jesus is genetically qualified to be the king. The Old Testament told us that the king of Israel, the king who would rule over the whole earth through the nation of Israel, would be a son of Abraham and a son of David. And Matthew starts by telling us Jesus fits those qualifications. Okay, So he's qualified to be king. That's where the book begins. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. These are the wise men, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. These wise men recognize what God is up to. These wise men recognize that this is no little baby they're looking at. This is the king of Israel, the king whom God has appointed to rule over the world. So they get the point. The king is born. That's where the book of Matthew begins. And the second section of the book of Matthew, God begins to prepare the subjects of the king. He begins to prepare the nation to receive their king. That's chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. God is preparing the nation through a forerunner, through a, a guy named John the Baptist. Read with me just the first couple verses of chapter 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we studied this gospel of the kingdom earlier this semester. John shows up and he tells people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he talks about kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about living with God in heaven. 
He's talking about the kingdom which comes down from heaven to earth. He's talking about the Davidic kingdom. God ruling over the earth through the nation of Israel. He says, the Davidic kingdom is here. Now, what do you need to do to be ready to receive your king, the Davidic king? Well, number one, you need to repent. And when John the Baptist and when Jesus used the word repent, what do they mean? They mean turn from your sin and obey the Mosaic law. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. If you want to be part of God's kingdom on earth, you've got to obey the Mosaic law. But they hadn't been doing that, so they need to repent. They need to turn from their disobedience and begin to once again obey the Mosaic law. Okay, you've you got to repent. What's the second thing John made them do? Get baptized. Water baptism. What is John's baptism by water? Well, it's public identification with the coming kingdom. When you're baptized in water by John the Baptist, you're saying to everyone around you, I am prepared for the king. I'm prepared to enter his kingdom. Okay, so John the Baptist shows up to Israel and he is calling thousands of people to repentance and baptism. He is preparing the nation to receive her king. That's the next section of the book of Matthew. After that, we have the preparation of the king himself. Chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 11. There's a couple things that Jesus does to be prepared to be the king of the nation. First, he's baptized by John. Now, Jesus is baptized not because he had any sins to confess or repent of. He's baptized to identify himself with the coming kingdom. But then something very significant happens right at the end of the chapter. Look at the end of chapter 3, verse 16, right after the baptism of Jesus. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. This is very significant. Throughout the Old Testament, Whenever God sent a a king or a prophet to the nation of Israel, God would anoint that man with the Holy Spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament. Before the church age, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person for a limited period of time, anointing them with power as the sent one, the Messiah of God. So Jesus is here anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit that designates him to be be the king. Look at verse 17, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the voice of the father. And remember, in the gospels, when you come across the word son, it's not talking about second member of the Trinity. What it's talking about is king. Son of God is an Old Testament title for the king of kings, the king who would rule through Israel over the entire world. God the Father is saying to the nation, here's the guy. This is the guy. This is my son. This is the king of kings. So Jesus is now anointed with the power of the Spirit. He's been designated by the Father as the king of kings, the Davidic king. And then chapter 4, his preparation continues. What happens next? Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Why? To prove that not only is he qualified to be king by genetics, but he's qualified to be king by character. The temptation proves that Jesus is perfectly righteous. The temptation proves that Jesus is the one and only human being who has ever been worthy to be called king of kings. It proves that he is absolutely righteous. So now the king has been prepared. His subjects have been prepared. Now he's been prepared. Next section of the book, he's unveiled. He is revealed to the nation. It's the next half of the book of Matthew. Jesus is revealing himself to the nation. He's revealing himself in two ways. He's revealing himself as king, number one, through his teaching. Jesus taught like no one else. Jesus taught with absolute authority. You see that over and over again. Particularly, we've we've studied many times this semester the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the the king declaring to his subjects the, the the ethics of his kingdom. 
The king declaring to his subjects what he expects of them. If you want to be part of my kingdom, here's what you need to do. That's the Sermon on the Mount. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7, end of Matthew chapter 7, and look at how the Sermon on the Mount ends. Okay, so Jesus teaches them. The king reveals his expectations of his subjects. And then look at how it ends. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught like no one had ever taught before. He didn't say, God told me to tell you. No, he said, I say to you, do this. I say to you, do not do that. Jesus spoke as one having kingly authority. That's the first way he revealed himself as king, was through his authoritative teaching. But that's not the only way he unveiled himself as king. Turn to chapter 9 of the book of Matthew. Chapter 9 of the book of Matthew, we're going to start in verse 2. Very significant incident in the life of Jesus. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Then he got up and went home, and when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Why did Jesus work miracles? Why did Jesus heal sick people? Why did he raise up lame people? Why did he perform miracles? Well, not just to make those people feel better. There's lots of people he didn't heal. He performed miracles primarily to prove that he is king. That's what the miracles of Jesus are about. Not just making people feel better. It's proving that he carries the authority of God, that he is king. He's revealed himself as king to the nation, both through his teaching and through his miracles. That's the next section, this section of the book of Matthew. And it culminates right at the end of chapter 11 in the offer of the king. Turn to the end of Matthew chapter 11. Very, very significant passage having unveiled himself, revealed himself as king, as the promised Davidic king, now Jesus offers himself to the nation. He's revealed himself as king, and now he offers himself as king. Look with me, starting in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus uses a word here twice, a significant word, rest. What do you think of when you hear the word rest? If if you're like me, rest to you probably means taking a nap. Probably means laying in the hammock in the backyard. That's what rest means to us, but that's not what biblical rest is. When Jesus uses the word rest, he's talking about Old Testament rest. That's the, the, the idea of rest in the Old Testament is frequent. You see it all the time. It's what the Jews were thinking of when Jesus said these words. They're not thinking of a nap. They're thinking of, of this. This is one of the best passages to look at when you're trying to define rest. Joshua 21. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not, not one of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. 
Okay, so biblical rest is, is not taking a nap. Biblical rest is not getting to heaven. This is not about salvation. Biblical rest is receiving God's covenant promises in your lifetime. Receiving God's covenant promises for the nation of Israel. There's promises of, of peace from enemies. Promises of possessing the land. Promises of prosperity. The rest that Jesus promises is the reception of the Old Testament covenants. He's telling the nation of Israel, the rest that you've been looking for for hundreds of years, you have not enjoyed this rest for hundreds of years because of your sin, I will give it to you. Jesus is offering what they've been waiting for for hundreds of years, peace, prosperity. I'll kick the Romans out, they'll be gone. You will have freedom. You will no longer be under oppression. He offers them the rest. What must they do to receive it? Take my yoke upon you. Now that's a farming metaphor. In that metaphor, um, who is Jesus? Jesus is the farmer. And and who are they? They're the cattle. They're they're the cows. What is Jesus saying? Um, um, I'm the farmer, you're the cows. Bend your neck to me. I will put my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? A yoke is, is what you control the cows with, what you exercise sovereignty and authority over the cows with. This isn't warm, fuzzy language by Jesus. This is the language of a king. Jesus is saying, I am your king, you are my subjects, bow the knee to me. That's what he's saying. I'm the king, you're the subjects, bow the knee to me. Now, the good news is I'm a king who is gentle, who is merciful. I'm a good king, I'm the king you want. But, but make no mistake, I am your king. The only way you can experience rest, the only way you can experience the promises that God covenanted to you in the Old Testament is if right now you bow the knee to me. This is the moment we've been waiting for throughout the book of Matthew. Finally, the king says, I'm here, it's time, bow the knee. They've been prepared, Jesus had revealed himself, now he says, this is the moment. Receive me as your king. If you do, I'll give you all that God had promised. This is the apex of the book of Matthew. Now, what will the nation do? The king has offered himself. What will the nation choose? Well, you know the rest of the story. The nation does not receive their king. They do not accept Jesus. They reject him instead. And that rejection, it culminates. It it, it happens in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12 is the definitive moment in which the nation of Israel rejects their king. End of chapter 11 is the definitive moment where Jesus offers himself as king. Chapter 12 is the definitive moment where they reject him. Let's look at the details of that chapter beginning in the middle of Matthew 12. Uh, We're going to start in verse 22. The rejection of Jesus actually begins with a miracle. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Okay, so, so Jesus performs this miracle, and notice, um, the guy's in pretty bad shape, isn't he? Okay, look at that, he's demon-possessed, he's blind, and he's mute. Uh, basically, everything that could be broken about this guy is broken. He's in incredibly bad shape, and yet Jesus heals him completely, casts out the demon, restores his sight, restores his hearing and his ability to speak. This man is completely healed by Jesus, an incredible miracle. How do the people respond? That's the next couple of verses. Look at verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, or Satan, the ruler of the demons. Now, let me explain what's going on here. You need to realize, um, public opinion worked differently in Israel than it does today. 
Okay, in the United States today, who sets public opinion? We do. Our leaders actually poll us and they survey us. They want to know what we think. If a leader, if a senator finds out that we think something different than they think, they're liable to flip their opinion. Okay, they rely upon us, the people, to establish what is right. Um, but that's not how it was in the ancient world. In ancient Israel, the leaders could care less what the people thought. And the people knew that. The, the people knew, well, it's, it's the leaders, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are educated. They're people of means. They're people of experience. We trust them to make the decisions for us. That's how it worked in Israel. The common people, all of us, we didn't make decisions. We relied upon the elite, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, to make the decisions for us. God appointed those men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to be the spiritual leaders of his people, Israel. So when we get to the response, notice what the people do in verse 23. They ask the logical question. Who are they asking this question of? The religious leaders. Common people turn to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they say, dang, did you see what just happened? Well, that's an incredible miracle. Okay, Jesus isn't, he doesn't look like what we expected a king to look like. He's not wearing regal robes. He doesn't have an army, but could he actually be the son of David, the king? Because he just did something incredible. They turn to their religious leaders. Help us understand. You're the guys with the education. You're the guys who know, is this the king? How do the religious leaders respond? Well, they blow it. They say, no, this is not your king. This miracle that he did is incredible. It's interesting. Notice they can't refute the miracle. They don't say, well, he just tricked you. That guy, he he really wasn't demon-possessed. He really wasn't blind and mute. No, the, the miracle is irrefutable. An incredible, supernatural, unprecedented miracle just happened. They can't refute it. All they can do is attribute it to the wrong source. No, Jesus is not the king sent from God. Jesus is simply an emissary of Satan. Jesus is simply a servant of Satan, healing by the power of Satan. This is the leader's initial rejection of Jesus, their initial rejection of him as king. Okay, now, how does Jesus respond? That's the next few verses. Jesus, the king, responds to their rejection. He rebukes them. Let's just skim through these verses. Starting in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul or Satan, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? I don't know if, if, as we've been reading this verses, you've thought, what in the world is he saying here? These are, these are confusing verses. What in the world is going on here? Jesus is proving the folly of their response. He's proving how foolish it is to believe that he's working through the power of Satan. He gives three logical proofs. Um, um, the first proof that Jesus lays out to them is, if Satan is casting out demons by his own power, then the kingdom of Satan is broken, it's falling, and, and that's unreasonable to believe. Second proof, you guys cast out demons. There are Jewish exorcists who cast out demons, and when they do, you honor them. You praise them. So why, when I do it, are you saying I'm doing it by the power of Satan? Third proof, the only way I could cast out a demon is if I'm more powerful than that demon. I am more powerful than that demon. You better respect me. So he gives three proofs to show you guys are making a foolish argument here. He shows the logical fallacy of their argument. And then in the next section, the section we really want to look at, he warns them of the consequences that will come if they ratify this rejection. If they continue to publicly reject him, 
Here will be the consequences. Look at verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying, the time for decision has come. There's no more sitting on the fence. You make your decision right now, religious leaders. Are you with me or are you against me? Your decision will be final. That's the first part of the warning. He goes on, verses 31 and 32. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus is saying, what you guys are doing, what you are in the process of doing right now in rejecting me, this is a sin that will be unforgivable. In this age and in the age to come, you'll never be forgiven of this. And then he goes on. He continues to warn them, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Okay, when, when we hear in the Bible, when we hear this idea of fruit, what are we thinking of? What, what usually comes to mind when you hear about somebody's fruit in the Bible? You usually think about actions. That's kind of what we go by default. Somebody's, the fruit of their life are their actions, but not in this passage. What is the fruit Jesus is talking about? Words. Jesus is warning them about their speech. The words you say in public, you will be judged by them. If you say the wrong words, you will be condemned. Okay, so Jesus as king, he has torn apart the the logic of their argument and then he has warned them, if you continue in this sin, it will be unforgiven, it will lead to judgment. He's warned them, this is serious, guys. Okay, and then, now the ball's back in their court. Ball goes back to the religious leaders. What will they do after this warning? Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. I want you to notice a couple things here. Who, Who are the people asking for a sign? It's the religious leaders. It's not the nation. It's the religious leaders. Um, Second thing I want you to notice, what did Jesus do five minutes before they asked for a sign? He healed a guy who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. Unprecedented miracle. Unbelievable miracle. Everybody saw it. They couldn't refute it. He just did a sign. What are they really doing in this verse? They are cementing their rejection of him. He just warned them, if you don't accept me, it's going to be serious. What do they do? They reject him. They say, show us another sign. Come on, do our bidding. We do not submit to you. This is their final rejection. This is it. They just did it. They just committed the sin Jesus warned them of. This is the moment. This is the definitive moment where the leaders reject their Messiah. Now, their, their rejection will be sealed at the cross, but this is the moment. This is the hinge of the book of Matthew. Everything was getting good in the first half. Now it all gets bad. Because this is the moment when they definitively reject their Messiah. The religious leaders make their choice and the nation will follow them. Okay, so they've rejected their Messiah. What happens next? Well, the king renders judgment. The king condemns them for what they've just done. Look starting in verse 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. The king's judgment. You are an evil and adulterous generation. I'm the king. I declare you are evil. He's just judged them. Now what's going to happen? Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the first public mention by Jesus in the whole book of Matthew of his coming death and resurrection. 
He'd never mentioned it in public before. This is the moment where Jesus' ministry turns. Before this moment, where was Jesus looking? Towards the throne. He was headed towards the throne. He was revealing himself as king. From this moment on, where is he headed? To the cross. From this moment on, he's going he's to be talking about the cross. He's going to be talking about his coming death and resurrection. That's what he's talking about all the time. What he will not do from this moment on is ever again offer himself as king. Never again in the book of Matthew will Jesus offer himself as the king of the Jews. Now that, that offer's off the table. They've rejected him. Now, rather than offer himself as king, he predicts that he's headed to the cross and he renders judgment on the nation. That judgment begins in the next verse. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's saying you guys are going to be judged. This generation, because of the choice you just made, this generation will be judged when you stand before God. Verse 43, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Jesus is not talking about an individual here. He's talking about the nation as a whole. John the Baptist and Jesus had shown up, and what had they done? They'd swept the nation clean. They'd cast out demons. They'd turned the nation from sins. They'd prepared the nation to receive their king, but then that process was aborted right at the last moment. The nation rejected their king. They don't have the authority of the king in their lives anymore, and what will be the consequence? Spiritual blindness. The nation will fall into a spiritual state worse than before John the Baptist showed up, and that's true. In the chapters that follow, the nation will descend into spiritual darkness, They will be blinded to the teachings of Jesus, so blind that they will actually crucify an innocent man. The blindness won't end there. It continues today. You look at the nation of Israel today, 2,000 years later. They are still spiritually blind because of these verses. The majority of Israelites living in the nation of Israel today are atheists. Why? Because of this judgment. The king said it. I judge you. You will be spiritually blind. This last state will be worse than the first because you rejected your king. In fact, until Jesus returns, the nation of Israel as a whole will remain spiritually blind because that's what the king declared. Okay, so that's Matthew chapter 12. That's the rejection of the people. They reject their king and how the king responds. That's a big idea. Now let's get to the questions that we really want to look at. So what is the unforgivable sin? What is this sin that Jesus declares is unforgivable? Well, you have to place it into its context. You have to place it into the flow of Matthew chapter 12, and you realize the unforgivable sin is the definitive choice of a religious leader of the nation of Israel who just witnessed Jesus' miracles to publicly accredit them to the power of Satan. In other words, this sin is very, very specific. This is not a broad definition of unforgivable sin. It's very specific. It is the definitive choice of the religious leaders, these shepherds who were appointed over the nation of Israel. It's the sin of them choosing to accredit a miracle they just witnessed to the power of Satan rather than the power of God. That is the unforgivable sin. It's very specific. It's very easy to understand what it is if you understand the flow of Matthew chapter 12. So that's the big idea. That, that is the specific sin. Now, I think a natural question to ask is, um, why is this sin unforgivable? 
Why does Jesus choose to call this sin out and say, this is the one that I deem to be unforgivable? Well, why is this sin unforgivable? Well, the easy answer is because Jesus said so. Jesus is king. He has authority over sin. He can declare any sin he wants to be unforgivable. That's the easy answer. He, as king, declares it to be unforgivable. That's why it is unforgivable. Well, why did he choose this one? You ever wondered that? Why does he not choose murder? Why does he not choose genocide? Verse 32 says, Jesus doesn't choose blasphemy against himself. You can blaspheme Jesus. You just can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Why? What is so bad about this sin? Well, uh, let's, let's think about it here. Why did he pick this sin? Well, if you doubted Jesus, there was still hope for you. When you look throughout the Gospels, you find out lots and lots of people doubted Jesus. Even the disciples, even John the Baptist doubted Jesus, didn't he? Jesus doesn't look like king. He doesn't act like a king. There's not an army with him. What's going on? Lots of people doubted Jesus. He didn't look like the king they expected. So God provided four witnesses to Jesus. Four witnesses to testify that Jesus is king. You have Old Testament prophecy, which Jesus fulfilled. That testifies that he is king. Uh, You have Jesus' perfect life, that he was completely righteous, that he never sinned. That testifies that he is king. You have his authoritative teaching. Jesus teaches with absolute authority, unlike anyone else. That proves he's king. And then finally, the final preeminent capstone proof from God that Jesus is king is what? The miracles. The miracles of the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't just making people feel better. That is the preeminent proof that Jesus is king. So you can doubt Jesus and there's still hope for you. There's all these witnesses to prove to you that Jesus is king. But if you reject each and every witness, culminating in your rejection of the final witness, the miracles performed through the power of the Holy Spirit, then there is no hope for you. That's what proves true. Once the religious leaders reject the Holy Spirit, they reject the power of the Holy Spirit at work from Jesus, they're given no more proof. Jesus continues to do miracles, but he doesn't do anything new. He's done. He's he's shown the people who he is, and they rejected the Holy Spirit. After doing that, that fourth and final witness, after rejecting the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no hope for them. Jesus declares this sin to be unforgivable because there's no more destructive sin that's ever been committed in the history of the world. When the religious leaders rejected the fourth and final testimony from God of the truth of Jesus, the fact that he is king, by rejecting Jesus, they brought to to the nation of Israel and to the world more destructive consequences than any group of people ever has. By their choice, the nation of Israel was plunged into thousands of years of spiritual darkness. Jews are atheists today because of the choice of these men. That's how destructive their choice was. The nation of Israel also came under temporal judgment. 70 AD, God sends the Romans under Titus to wipe out the nation of Israel. Why? Because the religious leaders rejected their king. And finally, worst consequence of all, the Messiah was crucified. Jesus went to the cross because of the choice of these men. Yes, it's the Romans who nailed him to the cross, but they were doing so because of the manipulation of the spiritual leaders of Israel. It's them who are held most guilty. The Pharisees and Sadducees who put Jesus on the cross, they're the ones held guilty because their sin is the most grievous sin ever committed in the history of the world. That's why Jesus chose this to be the unforgivable sin. So hopefully now you have a sense of what's going on in this passage. You have a sense of what the unforgivable sin is. Now let's bring it home. Let's start to apply this to our lives. Start to ask the relevant questions. 2,000 years later, let's talk about today. Can a person commit the unforgivable sin today? Well, let, let me ask you, let me turn it back to a question to you. Is there anyone alive today who is a religious leader of the nation of Israel and who has personally witnessed the miracles of Jesus Christ? 
No. No one alive today who fits those circumstances. So, can the unforgivable sin be committed today? Absolutely not. The unforgivable sin is locked in time. It's very particular. It referred only to a specific group of people, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, at a specific time when Jesus was alive and offering himself as king and they just witnessed his miracles. Those are the only people who could have committed this sin. So, can't be committed today, 2,000 years later. No one is alive who witnessed personally the miracles of Jesus Christ. This sin is impossible today. Okay, so let's ask the next question. Can a non-Christian commit any other unforgivable sin? So a person who's not a believer, they can't commit the unforgivable sin because they're not a religious leader of the nation of Israel who just personally witnessed the miracles of Jesus Christ. They can't commit that one. Can they commit any other unforgivable sin? Well, this one is actually easy to answer by looking at a guy named Paul. Paul, who we know as the apostle who wrote the bulk of the New Testament, a great guy. Uh, He started his life not so great. He was called Saul. And in the early years of the church, Saul did a lot of really bad things. He blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, He persecuted and personally murdered the followers of Jesus Christ, Christians. Paul did some pretty horrible things that led him to conclude as he looked back at his life in 1 Timothy 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In other words, if Paul can receive mercy, if he can be forgiven, then anyone can be forgiven. Let's make this concrete. Let's say a person walks into this room, an unbeliever walks into this room, curses the name of Christ, pulls out automatic weapons, and kills all of us. Can that person be saved? Yes, because that's exactly what Paul did. He cursed the name of Christ and killed lots of people like us. And yet he found mercy through the gospel. That's why the gospel is so great. Because no one is out of reach of the gospel. The gospel can bring forgiveness for even the worst of sins. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus as your Savior because you just think, it can't apply to me. God could never forgive me. I've done such horrible things. I've done such wretched things. The good news is, if the gospel can bring hope to Paul, it can bring hope to you. No one living is beyond hope of the gospel. If you are still breathing, then you have not committed an unforgivable sin. You can be forgiven. All you have to do is simply trust in Jesus as your Savior. Simply believe that Jesus died for all of your sins, even that really bad one that's keeping you back. He died for all of them and then rose from the dead. If you believe that message, you find forgiveness. Anyone finds forgiveness. That really blows people away. They always ask me right after I say that, okay, what about Hitler? What about Stalin? We have no evidence that those guys accepted the gospel, but what we do know is that if the gospel was presented to them and they believed it at the ends of their life, we would see them in heaven. That's crazy to think about. That's good news, though. It means that no one is beyond the power of the gospel to save. Okay, so can a non-Christian commit any other unforgivable sin? No. No sin is unforgivable that exists today. Okay, now let's bring it home to us. What about believers Can a believer, can a Christian commit any sin that would cause us to lose our salvation, that would cause us to become unforgivable? Okay, well, um, the first thing to know as as you try to answer this question is that Matthew chapter 12 has absolutely nothing to say to this question. Matthew 12 isn't about Christians. 
It's not about believers. It's clearly about unbelievers. It's about guys who just rejected Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. It has nothing to say to us who do believe in Jesus. Okay, so, so Matthew 12, we can't go there to answer this question. We have to go to the rest of the New Testament. We begin to piece together the evidence from the New Testament. We learn a couple things about sin from the New Testament. First of all, we learn Christians can commit sins that have very serious consequences. We don't have time to walk through them all. Just give you a, an overview. New Testament is clear. Sin is never worth. It's never a worthwhile choice. It always brings negative consequences into your life. It can begin with a, a loss of peace and joy. It can bring discipline from God. Sin can result in the loss of relationships. It can bring pain and suffering into your life. It can bring sickness into your life. Uh, sin can even bring death. Physical death can result from sin. And the consequences of sin don't end in this life. In the next life, when we stand before Jesus, if we give into lives of sin, we will lose reward. We will lose honor that he meant for us to have. Sin has extremely negative consequences in the life of a believer, but hell is not one of them. Loss of salvation is never mentioned as a consequence of sin in the life of a believer. We call this reality the doctrine of eternal security. Once saved, always saved. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, from that moment on, there is absolutely nothing you can do to lose your salvation, to forfeit your salvation, or give up your eternal life. I know our time is short, but this is really about the most important part of the whole message, so I'll hold you just a few minutes longer and walk you through how do we know that there is no sin that we as believers could commit that would cost us our salvation? How do we know that we are secure in our eternal life? Well, there's three lines of evidence that the New Testament gives us. First, we know that we are eternally secure by the nature of our salvation. The way that Jesus saved us proves to us that we can't lose our salvation. Let's go back one. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us All our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, when Jesus died for us, he didn't die for your pre conversion sins, he didn't die for your minor sins, he died for all of your sins. And then having died for your sins, God took all the list of your sins and he wrote paid in full on it and he removed it from his sight and nailed it to the cross. All of your sins hang on the cross right now. They're not in front of God. They're hanging on the cross. The nature of our salvation proves Jesus died for all of your sins, even the big ones. Hebrews 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He sacrificed himself once for all sin, for all people. Further down, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Further down, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In other words, when God saves you, he's not just forgiving your sins, he is perfecting you. You are already perfected in the sight of God. No matter what you do, you are considered perfect in the sight of God because of what Jesus did. The first reason we know that there's no sin we could commit that would cost us our salvation is by the nature of our salvation. Jesus paid for it all. All sins. Second reason we know that we can't lose our salvation is because of the nature that we now have as believers. 
the new nature we receive at the moment of faith. There's a number of, of passages that talk about this in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that all who've trusted in Christ are a new creation. In Galatians, he says that all of us who've trusted in Christ become sons of God. First uh, Peter, Peter talks about all of us who've trusted in Christ uh, have been reborn. When you look at all three of those, what do you notice? All three of those describe things that cannot be undone. You notice that? Those are permanent changes in state. Even if you wanted to, you you can't uncreate yourself, can you? That, That doesn't make any sense. It's impossible to uncreate something. Same with the third one. You can't unborn yourself. You can't go back and unbirth yourself. Once born, always born. It's a change in state that can't be undone. I think the second one, the middle one, is actually the most powerful. Uh, It's really neat how the Bible connects salvation with human relationships. I I now have a son. His name is Luke. Um, I I pray that Luke walks with the Lord throughout his life. But even if Luke does some really bad stuff, guess what? Luke will always be my son. There is nothing that he could ever do to become not my son. By definition, he's my son. He's my child. There's nothing that can, that can ever be done that could change that fact. Now, now, his sin might bring stress and distance in our relationship, but it will never change the fact that he is my son by birth. So it is for believers. We may have distance from God because of our sin. We might bring stress into our relationship with God because of our sin, but we can never change the fact that we are his children. You can't go back on that one. So you know there's no sin you could ever commit that could separate you from God because of our new nature. And finally, we know that we can never lose our salvation because of the nature of our Savior. For lack of time, I'm just going to read these verses to you real quick. John chapter 10, the words of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is saying, all believers are in the hands of my Father. He holds them. And there's no one strong enough to reach into his hands and remove you. It means if all the powers of the kingdom of evil are bent on removing you from the hands of God, they'll never succeed. All the powers of the kingdom of evil cannot even lift one finger of the hand of God. He's infinitely powerful. He holds on to you. There's nothing that can pull you out of his hands because he has all power. But then the natural question everybody wonders is, okay, there's nothing external that can pull me out of the hands of God, but what if I walk out of the hands of God? What if I choose to step out of the hands of God? What if I choose to give up my faith? What if I decide I no longer believe in the gospel? I no longer believe in this whole Jesus thing. Then what? Fortunately, we have Romans chapter 8. Just read it to you. Romans chapter 8, end of the chapter. Paul asks that question, who then or who, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then here's the point. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, now you're in this list. You're in this list. What What are you in this list? Any other created thing. 
We are creatures. We didn't make ourselves. We were created by God. Paul says definitively, no created thing, including you, can separate you from the saving love of God found in Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying is it is not within the range of options of creatures like us to give up our salvation. It's not within our range of options to forfeit our salvation. Our salvation has nothing to do with us. It's about God. Our salvation rests in the hands of God. He's the one who keeps us safe. Let me make this really concrete. Let's say that you trusted in Jesus years ago. You believed that he, was, uh, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. But today, you're really doubting that. In fact, you decide today that you no longer believe that Jesus is God's son. You no longer believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. In fact, you decide that you really hate all this Jesus stuff. You really hate everything to do with Jesus. And so you go stand on the corner of university in Texas and you yell out loud curses against Jesus. You curse the name of Christ. You tell everyone who will listen that Jesus was a liar, that Jesus was not the son of God. You tell everybody that. Have you lost your salvation? No. You will still go to heaven because staying saved is not about what you do. You're a created thing. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God, even by the most heinous sin imaginable. Murder, genocide, apostasy, blasphemy, none of those things can forfeit your salvation because salvation is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. You cannot give up your salvation. Now, let me be clear. You go do that, there's going to be really bad consequences for you. In this life and the next, it's not going to be a good choice, I promise you. Really bad consequences but they don't include hell. It is impossible for creatures to return the gift of salvation. There's no return receipt on it. It's yours whether you want it or not. You are saved by the choice and power of God, and there's nothing you can ever do to lose it. Well, let's close in prayer. I want us to go to the Lord and just spend some time thanking him that that's what he's revealed to us. He saves us no matter what we ever do. Lord God, thank you so much for the news that we've learned this morning. Thank you so much for the power of the gospel that it can save absolutely anyone alive on the planet earth today. No one is beyond hope of the gospel. Even the worst people imaginable can still be saved because that's what grace is. It saves those who are unworthy, Lord. We thank you so much that no one is beyond the hope of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to renew our commitment to share this good news with all who will listen, this great news that all can be forgiven. Lord, we we pray for all of us that we would be grateful, Lord. We're so grateful. We know we take it for granted, but we're so grateful, Lord, that there is nothing that we can ever do that could forfeit our salvation. Thank you, Lord, that we understand something that that John Bunyan missed, Lord, that, that we don't need to live with fear, that we can live with confidence, that we can live with peace because you have chosen to love us and save us and there's nothing we can ever do to give that gift back. Thank you so much, Lord, that our salvation, our eternal life is in your hands, not in our hands. Pray that all of us would walk in confidence. I pray that we wouldn't turn that confidence into complacency, Lord. We know that sin grieves your heart. We know that sin brings wretched consequences in our lives, Lord. I pray that we would all walk in obedience. Um, But obedience is not motivated out of fear, but out of gratitude. Obedience is motivated out of a desire to honor the one who so loved us that he took all our sins upon himself and died in our place. Thank you so much for the gift of your son, Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, thanks for staying a little later today. God bless you guys.